Hello, everyone. I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. All right, welcome back, queens. We have Kelly McGonigal with us today. She is a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University who specializes in understanding the mind-body connection. As a pioneer in the field of science help, her mission is to translate insights from psychology and neuroscience into practical strategies that support personal well-being and strengthen communities. She is the best-selling author of The Willpower Instinct and the Upside of Stress. You might also know her from her TED Talk, How to Make Stress Your Friend, which is one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time with over 20 million views. Through the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism, she helped create Stanford Compassion Cultivation Training, a program now taught around the world that helps individuals strengthen their empathy, compassion, and self-compassion. In January 2020, Oprah Magazine honored her ability to transform scientific data into wisdom by naming McGonagall the first ever O-Visionary, people whose groundbreaking way of seeing the world mean a better future for us all. Her new book, The Joy of Movement, explores why physical exercise is a powerful antidote to the modern epidemics of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. Um, Kelly, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Well, I think it's such an important time for your book to come out, for people to read it, and for us to talk about it during this crazy time. So let's first start with some science. Um, we're all familiar with what the runner's high is, but can you tell us what is actually going on in our brain and being when we engage yeah. in sustained physical activity? Yeah, so I actually call the runner's high the persistence high mm. because you don't need to run to get it. So let's start with that because I, I don't know if you're a runner. I'm not a runner. I love runners. Mm-hmm. I'm married to a runner. But my favorite <laughs> exercise high comes from dancing and from boxing. Nice. Um, and so, so the first of all, let's start with what you need to do to get a high, which is to challenge your body and sustain that effort for at least 20 minutes. So it could be anything from cycling, swimming, hiking, flow yoga, so you name it. Um, And what happens when you challenge your body is that your brain rewards you for the effort by releasing not only endorphins, so endorphins is a small part of it, but um, especially brain chemicals called endocannabinoids. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. idea is that your brain wants to reward you for effort by helping you persist, by helping you take joy in the effort. And even helping you connect with others because, you know, the way that humans have survived for hundreds of thousands of years is that we have to do hard stuff and we often have to cooperate with other people to do it. And so when your brain recognizes that you are engaged in something important and ideally meaningful, um, your brain rewards you mm-hmm. with this high. And what's so interesting about the high is, first of all, it does take about 20 minutes to kick in because your, your brain is sort of waiting to make sure that you're actually committed to whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> um, but that 
it doesn't just make you feel good the way some people sometimes talk about like an exercise high. So endocannabinoids, first of all, they reduce pain, stress, anxiety, frustration, anything that's, that's going on in your body or in your brain that's really distressing. So endocannabinoids quiet that down. So often one of the first things that people feel when an exercise high kicks in is this kind of relief, mm-hmm. a freedom from whatever inner like suffering was going on before they started exercise. And then endocannabinoids also enhance every type of pleasure. So if you're feeling hopeful, you're feeling confident, um, you're enjoying you know, a beautiful sunrise or you're listening to music, um, the joy that you get from connecting with others, so someone makes eye contact or gives you a high five or a hug, anything that feels good feels even better. It kind of sensitizes you to joy and to pleasure. And so another side effect of the exercise high is people start to feel really good. And you can hear some like ridiculous sounding descriptions of euphoria and ecstasy, or sometimes it just feels like, like life is good and you feel like you could take on the world or you feel like a better version of yourself. That's Mm -hmm. a little bit of the science behind it and the why behind it. And the science that I love is that the high persists in terms of how it shapes the rest of your day. So yeah, you might get like your peak pleasure, you know, in the middle of your workout or that afterglow when you're done. So I woke up this morning and did 30 minutes of um, high intensity interval training. And, you know, I had that peak glow right at the end of it. But one of the reasons I like to work out in the morning is I know that the persistence high it's such a profound shift in brain chemistry that it actually kind of changes who you are as you go into your next role, your next activity, as you interact with whatever, you know, other humans you're around. Um, and research shows that when you exercise later in the day, you're more likely to make progress on important goals and you have more positive interactions with, with friends and family and other people. And I believe that is partly due to the persistence high that really does create a kind of like biochemistry and outlook that, you know, lets you know, okay, I'm somebody who can do hard things and take joy in the effort. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm definitely seeing that in my house when I was reading about that in that chapter. I mean, I know I feel better after I run and my husband points out, you are getting a little bit irritable irritable. Have you, have you been running lately? And he'll shove me out the door and I come back and I feel better because I thought like, okay, I'm moving my body and I'm getting some time for me, but there's some actually biology going on that makes me a much nicer person after I've moved my body. Yeah. Let me just, the other really amazing thing about this is that it's not a short term effect. So we know that people who exercise, they're, they're basically changing the structure of their brains in the same way that Like when you lift weights, you change the structure of your muscles. And when you run, you change the structure of your heart. So exercise also changes the structure of your brain in part because of this this chemistry of the persistence high. And when your brain regularly experiences that high, it actually trains your brain to be more sensitive to joy and more resilient to stress all the time. And you see it, you know, at at very detailed structure within the brain, like how many receptors you have for pleasure chemicals. So that like you're, it's easier for you to take joy in everyday things. It's, you see it at the, the level of you know, how connected different areas of the brain are that help you regulate anxiety or anger and other emotions. And so every time you experience a high, you can say to yourself, not only do I feel good now, but I'm actually training my brain in the same way that you know you're training your muscles and your heart when you exercise. 
Man, that's just amazing. And makes sense. Our brain is an organ just like anything right. else. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, yeah. too. I think about the all or nothing exercisers. Sure. That maybe they just didn't give enough time to get sensitized. Mm. <laughs> that is true. And let's just actually, when you're trying to convince someone else to exercise, so I don't know, probably a lot of the people listening are already in love with some form of movement. Mm-hmm. But you should have empathy for those people who are just starting out. It is the truth that your brain does not know how to give you a strong high when you first start out. Your brain learns it in the same way that your muscles learn how to relax into a stretch when you practice yoga, or your, your body actually learns how to produce more adrenaline, the fitter you get, so that you can do harder things and you know, exert more energy with more pleasure when you train your cardiovascular system. And the brain is the same way. It takes about six weeks, it seems, for the brain to really understand how to, how to deliver this kind of pleasure and persistence high from exercise. So you got to look for ways to make it better while you're getting to that place where your brain is trained. And I always tell people, you know, add music because most people can already get an endorphin and adrenaline rush from music that they love. Ooh, um, yeah. Do it with other people if you can. You know, find an activity you love. If you're competitive, find a way to compete with yourself or others. You can always bring in other things that, kind of um, that activate your sense of joy or purpose and then wait for your brain to catch up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So great. So let's kind of talk on the other spectrum since Karen and I work a lot with um, eating disorders and those that have like dysfunctional exercise how do we go from this place of the brain thriving, it, it helps with anxiety to it being like their soul coping? Can they actually become addicted to exercise? Um, and is it similar to like yeah. substance addiction? Yeah, it actually, you can. And so there's sort of a, like an upside and a downside to that. Um, there, are, there are really two versions of exercise dependence. One is relatively healthy and one can be very destructive. Now, one of the reasons that people get get hooked or dependent on exercise is because it is such a powerful mood regulator. Mm-hmm. And many people who struggle with things like addiction or eating disorders, anxiety, depression, even grief um, and trauma, when they experience how profoundly physical exercise can reset their brain chemistry, their mood, their outlook, it's often so much more effective than everything else they've tried um, that, is, that is healthy that you can get into the cycle of really wanting that relief or wanting that high. And rather than using the, that reset to engage with other roles and relationships that are meaningful to you, um, you can get stuck in the cycle of thinking, I just need to exercise again to get that relief, to feel powerful to feel whatever the, the benefit is. Um, and that is, so that actually is the healthier version of exercise dependence because it really is using exercise as medicine. And then it's about just figuring out, okay, how do I have a relationship with this where I think of the exercise as setting me up to do other things in life that are meaningful or setting me up to have, uh, you know, that difficult conversation with someone I love or making me a better version of myself as I approach this important goal in my life. So then it's sort of like a mindset reset that you don't give up the medicine. The really unhealthy dependence on exercise almost always comes when exercise is viewed as a way to control weight, image, uh, appearance, or acceptance, which is why, you know, people 
who struggle with eating disorders are more likely to fall into that trap because exercise can be viewed as a way to, you know, make up for what you consumed or as all of the ways that people with eating disorders can abuse exercise or abuse themselves through exercise. And with that, you know, the, the mindset reset that is required is sometimes even more challenging, which is that to, to come to understand your body as a vehicle for pleasure and making progress on, on goals that matter to you as a vehicle for connecting with others and experiencing all of these like basic human joys that are not about burning calories or fixing your body to look a certain way. And, you know, forget people with, with eating disorders as like the only people who struggle with this. Mm -hmm. This is almost universal. And Mm -hmm. it's not just in the U S every culture where I've spoken to people, um, there, we have been trained to view exercise as a, as something you do to punish yourself for mm-hmm. enjoying life rather than as a vehicle for joy and meaning and connection. And so that's really where the reset comes. And, and a lot of that comes, one of the resets can come from focusing on how movement has meaning. Do you know often we'll say to people, like when you lift weights, you can sense your own strength. When you run, you can sense yourself moving forward in life. You know, when I box, I can sense my will to live. And literally boxing has gotten me through periods of grief mm-hmm. because it was the only time I could somehow muster up this, this like fierce sense of I am willing to fight to live. It's a really powerful antidote for me for depression and grief. And I encourage people to look for movement that has that kind of meaning that when you do it, you sense some aspect of yourself that you value or that you want to cultivate and that's a really powerful way to start to change your mindset. That was beautiful. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how to use movement as a tool for my clients kind of in a different way, just like she was saying. I mean, I'm just really relating to the boxing and grief. I have talked to clients like there's such an aspect of like anger involved mm-hmm. in grief that we have to do yeah. something physically to cope with that emotion. And I am just thinking out loud of like, what type of motion are you having? What type of movement could help with Ooh, that emotion? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that um, things like addiction, grief, depression, and trauma, one of the most insidious side effects that they have on your brain is they actually make it more difficult to move. It, like similar mm-hmm. to neurological disorders like Parkinson's disease because they all disrupt the dopamine system of the brain and the reward system of the brain. And so sometimes you need to tap into emotions, imagery, situations that will jumpstart your brain's ability to make you move. It's why music is so helpful. But like you said, emotions can do it too. And there is something really fierce about boxing, but people can experience similar things through, you know, power lifting, and running and swimming. And I've you know, heard people talk about surfing as being really powerful mm-hmm. for evoking this kind of emotional connection that, that allows you to move beyond um, the way that some of these mental health challenges seem to get in the way of, of the natural instinct to move and to take joy in movement. It's like mm-hmm. a movement menu. A movement menu. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what I loved most about your book, The Joy of Movement, was the discussion on connection and the collective joy that comes from exercising. What, again, an important time to discuss this. So how are these things correlated? And I would like to know what's your take on 
movement, community connection during COVID right now? How do you see it impacted? How do you see it helping? Give us a little bit of insight on that. Yeah, so well, we know that like all forms of movement can improve mood, but there's really something special about moving with other people. And people often experience a kind of self-transcendence, uh, a sense of empowerment, and, and deep satisfaction and belonging when they move with other people, and especially when they move in synchrony with other people. So you could be like walking side by side with someone. You could be in a group class, you know, doing slow yoga together or strength training. I teach a lot of dance classes. And so, of course, you know, we're all moving in synchrony together with one another and with the music. Um, and we know that when people move with others, it activates this powerful human instinct to feel like a part of something bigger than yourself. And that produces all of these amazing emotions of, of trust and hope and a sense of, of a collective optimism, of being supported. Um, it's a really amazing feeling. And again, it's linked to our basic human nature that human beings often need to come together to thrive. And uh, psychologists call this the state collective joy, this thing that you can tap into by moving with others, um, particularly when there's a sense of, of, of shared purpose or, or shared meaning which is like almost any group fitness class or any kind of like walking club or, or running group. Um, and during COVID, this has been a really challenge. So I mentioned I teach a lot of group classes. I spent six months not being able to teach people in person and just uh, in September was able to start teaching group classes again. And one of the things that I think struck a lot of people who were going to the gym or taking classes um, or training in a group, they didn't realize how much those those movement sessions were fueling them in the rest of their lives by creating that sense of community and giving them that sense of hope. Like for example, when people walk with other people, you're in like a walking group. And if, if you ask them, do you believe that positive change in the world is possible? They're more likely to say yes after they've walked with a group of people. And they're more likely to say that they believe the problems that they face in their own lives are solvable. And so when you're suddenly hit with this massive crisis, where things are uncertain, you don't have a lot of control, everyone is dealing with more stressors. Um, I think people really notice the lack of that collective joy that inspires us to feel hope. So I, you know, I do believe it's possible to experience collective joy through technology and at a distance. Um, I'm a fan of finding the version that works for you, whether it's Zoom classes or doing virtual events, which you know, I've been doing some, some fun events um, but I got to tell you, being back in person, there's, to me, there's nothing like it. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, Becca, but it has been a topic of conversation with my clients, kind of this collective grief that's occurring when we're not able to attend these types of group interactions because it is a community, sure. right? You get to know your instructor, you get to know everyone, and that is something people are missing if they don't have that available or aren't able to go back or choosing not to go back in a certain way. And you know what else is so great about movement communities? Because, you know, we're going to be back eventually. Mm -hmm. I, some of us are back now. Some folks are will find their way in. You know, time marches on. And I want people to think about this as something that's important, even if what we're feeling right now is the grief that we're, that we're missing it. Because, you know, unlike so many forms of grief, this is actually something that we will be able to enjoy again. Mm -hmm. um, that one of the reasons it's so meaningful is that if you find a form of movement that, that brings out a side of you that isn't valued in every other role and relationship in your life, that's particularly magical. 
like a place you go where people see you as strong and powerful, where people appreciate that you are sensual and sexual, like in a dance class, that um, you're a fierce competitor maybe on uh, the athletic field or on a racetrack. Movement often allows us to express a side of ourselves that we don't get to everywhere else, and it gets reflected back to us when we have a movement community and we get celebrated and we get to celebrate others. And I think that's such a, um, an important part of why movement communities are so meaningful. Mm-hmm. Do you still get the same kind of release like oxytocin that you would with bonding? Same thing. Do you get even more? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting. <laughs> such a good hormone. The oxytocin. Wonderful, I love that wonderful one. hormone and brain chemical that helps us feel more connected to others. And also, by the way, makes us feel brave. brave. So oxytocin, you know, mm. when you feel connected to others, um, it increases that feeling of closeness, but it also dampens down activation in the fear circuits of your brain, stress and anxiety. So it's one reason why connecting with others often makes us feel so much better about the stress in our lives. It's literally creating courage. Um, but what's also interesting is that high-intensity exercise triggers a release of oxytocin as well um, in a way that that more gentle versions of exercise probably don't. Mm-hmm. It has to do with being able to, you know, to regulate different systems of your body. Oxytocin helps regulate a lot of systems. So it's almost like a side effect. So I think it's one of the reasons why high, high intensity group movement experiences are especially powerful because not only are you getting endorphins and endocannabinoids, which help you connect with others, but man, you throw oxytocin into that. It's like, like races it's are important. a great example of that. You know, you cross a finish sure. line and you are in love with everybody. Um, so, <laughs> that yeah. is true. Just a or maybe explosion. that's the secret and, and, sauce to team chemistry. Is, oh, I could see that. Yeah. yeah. When I started writing the book, one of my goals was to make sure everyone understood I'm talking to everybody. So, you know, including examples of people with every, you know, type of movement challenge, whether it's a physical disability, a neurological disorder, um, dealing with severe physical health challenges, even in hospice care at the end of life, mm-hmm. people dealing with serious mental health challenges like depression and grief, that it's, it's for everyone. And it's for however you can move your body. So there's no dose that's too small. And there's no intensity that is too gentle. It's all good. And it all helps in terms of improving mood, increasing hope, helping people connect and bond. However, one of the things I learned from the research that I didn't know when I started is that intensity truly seems to amplify everything we've talked about so far, whether it's how exercise changes your brain in the long term to the the, the emotional high that you get from exercising, the the bonding that you do with other people. Um, Intensity seems to amplify it. And that's actually changed the way that I exercise. And I started to challenge myself more through movement. Now that I understand there's something about the way that our, our human system has evolved and it's adapted, that we get rewarded for doing things that are really outside our comfort zone. And that's all relative. So it's what's high intensity for you. Mm-hmm. So love that. I mean, we've gotten some general themes. What are some other things that readers can expect to learn from your book? Uh, other, so, um, gosh, one of the things that, that emerged for me that was really surprising was, um, you know, there's this whole chapter about people who do ultra endurance and adventure <laughs> stuff mm-hmm. that to me, I, do either of you do that sort of thing? Like no. tough mutters and Mm-mm. ultra endurance. I've done ultra a tough marathons. mutter. Yeah. I've done some marathons, ultra marathons. No, no, no. <laughs> 
Well, even like, okay, so for people like me, marathon is like, what? So it, to me, it all just seems like, oh, are you suffering on purpose? <laughs> Why? Mm-hmm. Sure. Why are you electrocuting yourself at a race or pushing your, you know, the limits of your body? Those I'm are like, good questions. I suffer enough in life. I don't need to practice. So, so that, that chapter was the hardest for me to write because I had to just keep showing up, talking to people, watching races. What on earth is going on in these settings that is leading people to be truly moved by their experience, emotionally yeah. moved, transformed? Um, and what I was so delighted to discover is that people were talking about interdependence and that it wasn't so much about proving that you can do as an individual superhuman things. It was that these events are so hard that you can't do it on your own. And people would talk to me, like I talked to an ultra runner who suffers from depression, severe depression and suicidal thinking and how he had to learn to accept help in order to make it through, you know, like an overnight run where you're sleep deprived and you're running for, I don't know, hundreds of miles. And that like, you literally can't do it unless you accept the help of a coach Mm -hmm. who says things like, have you eaten recently? Are you hydrated? Like, let's keep going one foot in front of the other. But the whole thing becomes like a metaphor for how humans need one another and we need to learn to accept help even as we tap into our own strengths. And I saw that theme come up over and over and it helped me appreciate why, like, so my husband is somebody who ended up uh, becoming one, like a few years ago, not exercising at all, deciding he wanted to train for a half marathon to completing his first ultra marathon last year. And part of me was like, why? Like, how far are you going to keep going? Are you trying to prove something? But it's just so fascinating to realize that what people are discovering in these events is the same thing that I'm discovering in my dance classes or that I experienced, you know, teaching flow yoga to people who are struggling in their own lives with, with loss or with grief or depression is that what we experience is we aren't in this on our own. And I just that I love that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what could be a more beautiful theme to experience? You're right. I never thought about that. In those types of sports, you definitely need a team mm-hmm. to get you across the line and how beneficial that is. Wow. Kelly, you, I mean, you're talking to two neuro nerds <laughs> that love. We could talk all day about no, this I'm stuff. Kidding. So thank you so much for being on. Um, we do like to ask at the end of every interview how the interviewee loves lives <laughs> the fit philosophy. So how have you been trying to find find balance, performance, health, intellect, um, and taking time for self right now? Ah, well, COVID is, is such a weird time, right? Because I, I'm unable to do so many of the things I used to do that bring a sense of meaning and connection. So one of the first things that I did um, when the extreme COVID restrictions went into place is um, I, I started waking up in the morning saying to myself, okay, whatever you can or cannot control, you're going to do one thing today to make this a good day for yourself and one thing to make this a good day for others, mm-hmm. which was really useful at a time when it felt like you, there was nothing I could do. And I've actually continued to, to check in with that idea, which is, a, which is in itself a kind of balance, the recognition that I can put some energy today towards investing in myself or caring for myself and to do that for others as well. And I think one of the reasons why that was a really important mindset exercise for me is we didn't talk about this, but uh, my own research looks at compassion and, and, and empathy and helping others as a source of resilience, as mm-hmm. a source of strength. And we know that when there's a lot of uh, 
suffering in the world or when problems are really big, we can experience this kind of paralysis or shutdown where it feels like there's nothing we can do that makes a difference, that the problem is so big, we become overwhelmed. And we know that if you can help people focus on one thing they can do or one person they can help, they can get that kind of warm glow that gives them the courage and the hope to continue rather than to, to give up with despair. And so I feel like I was giving myself my own little intervention um, <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to find sustained hope. And uh, yeah, so. Such that's great advice. Way. Yeah. Again, thank you so much for being on. We'll put in our show notes how um, people can connect with you and how they can get the joy of movement as well as um, looking into your other books too. Kelly, have a great day and thanks for great. being on. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye, Queens. Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as Red S, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fit queen and Hashtag fit for a queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.